Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on today's show, Andrew's going to shed some light on the possibility of a shadow biosphere lurking somewhere on Earth. He will chat with our special guest, Jessica Spake, about the study she led that resulted in the first confirmed discovery of helium in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. And I am going to take us through all of the exoplanet news that's happened in the last month. But first, let's introduce the motley crew of Exocast. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I'm at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, and I study the atmospheres of extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne, and I'm a postdoc at the Laboratoire d'Astrophysique de Marseille in France, and I study transiting exoplanets. Uh, and I'm Andrew Rushby. I'm a postdoctoral astrobiologist at NASA Ames Research Center in San Francisco Bay, uh, where I look for aliens and study the early climate of the Earth. You made that sound way more exotic this time. <laughs> Gotta mix it up. I, f- I figure, you know, our, regu- our regular listeners, you know, gonna want a, a slight change to the intros. Just looking for aliens, just casually. Just casually. <laughs> also, Hugh says it exactly the same every time. You slight stumble and then start again. Mm. Oh, his French is getting better. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. But... <laughs> How's everything been going, Hugh? Yeah, it's good. I've been happy. To, well, we're here about the news, but I've been happy about the Gaia data coming in. It's told me a lot more about some of my exoplanet candidates, and um, but I now worry that everyone else who's got the same candidates is is rapidly writing up their papers, so it's a little bit stressful as well. Yeah, that's always the worry, isn't it? There's always this kind of element of the the competition associated with such a fast moving field. It's exciting, but also more stressful. Yeah, definitely. Well, remember, we're all equally stressed, right? Everyone else is as stressed as everyone else. So, so we're all feeling the same way. So everyone should just decide that we should all just take a break and just Absolutely. calm down. <laughs> then then yeah. we're all good. Mm-hmm. Are you taking your break, Hannah? Is that why you're in the UK? Uh, no, I'm working all the time whilst I'm here. Uh, University of oh, Exeter shame. is still a collaboration, so we've got lots of stuff to do. But a little bit of a break in the sunshine. How long are you there? I'm only here for a week. Oh, okay. Here's just a quick flyby. And um, what have you been doing, Andrew? Ah, well, I actually had the um, the pleasure of visiting another NASA center for a change. Always always fun to see how things are done on the other side of the country. So I was at NASA Goddard for a week. Um, I hung out in the Louvois meeting, which is one of the, the concepts for the um, big telescope for the decadal survey that's coming up. Um, so I learned a lot about optics and engineering and how things are put into spacecraft. And it's a lot, yeah, very interesting stuff. Um, has Louvois, because Lou, did Louvois used to be at last, or when would, what did it happen to at last? Because that was another name for a big telescope oh. in space, right? So I that don't... turned into multiple candidates that can go uh. forward for the, so that encompasses OST, Habex, Louvois, and whatever the name of the X-ray one is. I never remember the X-ray. There's only no, three I have. No, I never I remember the X-ray one, but we, oh. if, you know, we should start trying to work out how we can use the X-ray one. We all just assume it's not going to happen, mm-hmm. but we should work I've out. I've never even heard of it, to be honest. Right, <laughs> so it's not particularly relevant to exoplanets. They have no plans to include anything that will be relevant for exoplanets, so nobody really pays much attention. But 
in the exoplanet field. Don't want to offend one of our listeners in case they work on whatever the name of this X-ray mission is. Tweet us if you uh, know what it's called. So we're lucky that Hannah's back in Exeter this month because joined with her in uh, the University of Exeter is Jessica Spake, who is this month's guest. Hello. And she's a PhD student at the University of Exeter. And what, what do you work on, Jess? Hello, Hugh. Thanks. I work on exoplanet atmospheres. I mainly do observations using the Hubble Space Telescope. So you've moved a bit from what you were working on at Warwick, which was transit detection, right? Mm. So I remember you had, a, you had an interesting planet that you discovered at Warwick that was extremely faint. Are you joking? <laughs> that was interesting because it was so boring. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I shouldn't be mean. What planet was it? Was 135B? It, yeah, you, nobody's heard of it, right? No, it's not, it's not high on the list of um, favourable targets for atmospheric characterisation. It's fair enough. <laughs> it's like one of the faintest WASP... T- I think it may be the faintest WASP target, WASP planet ever. See, there you go. Maybe. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah that's that yeah. I literally also when I realised that I was writing up this paper and I was trying to, you know, I was writing the discussion and I was like, oh, so what, you know, what makes this planet interesting? I don't know. And I was like, God, looking for good stuff. And I realised, oh my God, it's the faintest wasp planet ever. And I got really excited <laughs> about that. And I ran to Don Palaco's office and I was like, Don, Don, I found something interesting about this planet. It's the faintest wasp planet ever. And he was like, don't put that in. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, what, what is its magnitude? Uh, like 13.6 or something. See, okay, well, that crazy. tells you the, yeah, but that tells yeah, you the, the limit, limit yeah, of exactly. the instrument, yeah, which is far more yeah. interesting than... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it, yeah, it sounds like you've moved on to brighter and better things with Wasp 107. Oh, I like that. Yes, I have. Sounds <laughs> like one of those segues in the CSI episode or something. <laughs> oh, no, I, thought, I thought that worked. <laughs> Yeah, so the last month has seen quite an interesting paper from you, right, on uh, WASP-107's um, helium. So can you tell us a little bit about about that? Yeah, so we've just published a paper in Nature. Um, it's the first detection of helium on an exoplanet. Um, WASP-107 is the exoplanet in question. And it's a very nice planet to look at if you're interested in atmospheric characterization because it's a very low-density gas giant. It's about the same size as Jupiter, but only has 12% of its mass. And we looked at it in the infrared using the Hubble Space Telescope and discovered uh, a lovely feature corresponding to the 10838 Angstrom line for metastable helium. Cool. So we'll get to that in a second, I guess. But So is WASP-107 newly discovered? It was discovered in 2017. Okay. Um, So that explains why not many people have observed it yet, I guess. Mm. It has been observed by a team led by Laura Kreiberg, also with Wi-Fi camera on HST. And they detected a beautiful water feature and a fairly flat cloud deck as well. It was actually featured in Exocast. Um, sorry, the Exo Cup, I should say, uh, losing I think to oh, Kepler one eighty six F. How did it do? Uh, it did. It did oh, well up oh. to that point, but once the once the oh, Kepler planet started coming out, but now oh. now with the helium detection, maybe for Exo Cup two, who knows? Well, I'll cross my fingers. So, so you were looking with Wildfield camera, but um, how come you looked in the Grism one hundred two? Because I guess Laura Quidberg was looking in the other Grism, because there are these two different modes, right, for this this mm. HST instrument. 
So what, what mm -hmm. made you search in the other unused mode? Uh, oh, that is a good question. <coughs> so it's not been used very much. Um, I actually asked for, or my team asked for both GRISMs, G102 and G141, um, because we wanted to look for water and potentially methane, well, there's no methane there. And we thought a broader wavelength coverage to cons better constrain the water features, because there is a water feature, although we don't see it in our data in the G102 band pass. Our proposal actually got split, and we got given half the time we asked for. <laughs> and Laura's team were given the G141. Oh, really? So they got the yeah. <laughs> what you thought was the good grism, and you got what you exactly, thought was the tough yeah. grism. I w I'm not going to lie. I was a bit upset to be like, oh, the crap grism. <laughs> <laughs> so is it? why is it so crap? What's the, what's the reason? It's, it's not, not really. Crap. No, it's not crap at all. It's not. It's not. It's very. It's lovely. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> is it just there's not there's no good band in that? In the uh, wavelength, the throughput uh, is lower. The wavelength coverage is um, not as broad as G141, and the water feature that you might expect to see is lower amplitude than the huge one you'd see in the G141 grism. Right. So what happened? So you you got the data back from this grism. So that's what transits in each color, I guess, for this specific wavelength range. And then, so what did, what did you find? What is what is the this helium band you found? So we got one transit in the G102 ism that covers um, about 8,700 to uh, 11,000 angstroms. And it was mostly flat, apart from this strange, very narrow feature that we saw at about 10, 830 angstroms. Hmm. So you didn't expect to see anything there, I guess? We weren't looking for it, no. <laughs> how often that happens in science? It's a very happy accident. So how did you figure out it was helium? A lot of searching. And it turns out the 10830 Angstrom line has been used a lot in uh, studies of stars. It's actually a stellar absorption line that forms in the chromosphere of stars. It's been used to study mass loss rates of stars as well. Right, okay. So can we take a, a step back from um, <clears throat> discussions of grisms and other complicated items? Just a very <clears throat> simple overview. Helium, I thought, it's pretty common. It's ubiquitous everywhere. Why haven't we found it already? Good, good question. So there aren't too many strong lines of helium to go for if you're looking in exoplanet transmission spectra. So the line that we detected forms when helium is in this weird metastable state. So it takes a lot of energy to ionize helium, uh, but once you do, the helium ion can recombine with free electrons in a planetary atmosphere and get stuck in this weird, excited metastable state. And from this excited state, there is this transition um, to a, you know, the next excited level that requires a photon of wavelengths um, 10 to 30 angstroms to go between these um, these two excited states, um, and this forms a very strong absorption line um, because it the um, excited electron can't fall back down to the ground state, um, so it gets stuck there. But there are, there aren't too many other um, lines like this to go for in helium. There's one in the optical. Um, at five, eight, seven, six angstroms, but it's a lot weaker um, than the one in the infrared that, that we went for. 
Um, and were there like hardware and technology constraints like that were just yeah okay. yeah so the 1030 angstrom line um exists in a wavelength space that's difficult to reach actually with detectors so th and for a while there actually haven't been many ground-based instruments that can do it we're lucky because uh, over the next couple of years the, there are quite a few infrared um, spectrographs coming online that can target this line at high resolution which is super exciting and also, of course, the James Webb Space, Space Telescope will be able to go for this as well. Um, but there's been a period of few ground-based instruments that are capable of even um, observing at this wavelength. Um, Keck can do it, but um, not too many other things. Cryos Plus as well will be great when that comes online. <laughs> uh, also, another reason is that from the ground there are... Um, there are water absorption lines near this 10830 Angstrom line that make ground-based observations quite difficult, um, which has, I think, put off a few people. So that's water from our own atmosphere, I guess. Yeah. We're not seeing it yeah, in that's it. the other atmosphere, in the exoplanet. Uh, I guess we are seeing it in the exoplanet as well, maybe. It's true, but the, the amplitude of those water features from in the exoplanet atmosphere are much smaller than the helium one would be. So the, the helium line that you detected is really strong. If you look at the figures that are in the paper, you can just see this one data point that's just decided it doesn't want to play, <laughs> it doesn't want to be part of the gang. Could you explain to us b about what that means in sure. this detection? So WASP-187b is a low-density gas giant. Um, it receives a lot of high-energy UV radiation from its host star, which is a small K6 star. It's quite active. And this high-energy radiation heats up the upper layers of the atmosphere, and we think it then ex rapidly expands and escapes into space. Uh, and so this escaping atmosphere um, forms this huge signal. The upper atmosphere, we think, extends uh, over tens of thousands of kilometers above um, the flat cloud deck that was observed with wide field camera, for example. So this huge um, extended upper atmosphere that's escaping into space is what makes is part of what makes the, the signal so huge. How big is it? Is it? Did I see eight percent? Is that right? So we didn't resolve the line, right. but from our models of the line profile, uh, we think that the core of the line should reach uh, about six percent tra in transit depth. Yeah, that's crazy. Which is Pretty crazy. That's like three times the planet. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, the and the rest of the infrared data, the planet gives a transit depth of about two percent. So yeah, it's <laughs> a lot bigger. Wow. In the in the core of the line. Is it in a in, in like a halo around the planet, or how do you think the helium is? Good question. Yeah. So it definitely this metastable helium for sure only forms should only form on the day side of the planet because that's where this the helium gets ionized. Um, we didn't, because our um, our data using HST, we didn't resolve the shape of the line profile. And if, if you do, if you resolve the shape of the line profile, you might be able to see some radio velocity information in there. There might be some blue shifts. Um, and you could use that to, to say, to get at um, the speed, the, the velocity, the escape velocity of you know how how fast this material is, is escaping from the planet, and in turn that might tell you something about the um, uh, the shape of the you know something about the structure of the 
of the upper atmosphere. But we we didn't get any of that information. We just know that if there's if there's so much helium there, it's got to be way beyond the planet's gr- grasp, yeah. right? It's got to be being yeah. blown away from this planet. Which yeah, is quite for sure. Right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, we can say that the planet looks about three times bigger that, than it normally does in the core of this line. So um, presumably that forms this very large shell uh, around the planet. And I saw in the paper that you mentioned even a comet tail might be possible. Do you think yeah. that, is that observable as well? Uh, that should be observable. Um, the thing is, this metastable helium can only form at high enough densities to, to keep it populated. And so the helium will form actually fairly close, close by the planet where the density is high enough. So we can't use the helium to look for like a wispy, very low density tail. The metastable state will depopulate at those, do- at those densities. So we're not going to be able to see, I don't think, um, too much pre or post transit absorption. We probably won't be able to see a, a huge wispy tail like that. But potentially, with you know, with this radio velocity information from high resolution spectrographs, we could maybe see um, evidence of a tail that way that's being you know blasted away from the planet at high speeds. Okay. Oh, cool. So is WASP-107 the only planet that has this helium line, or is, is, it, is it likely that a lot of planets have the same helium shell? Oh, yeah, I think it's extremely likely that a lot of planets have... Yeah, I guess the important thing is if it's detectable or not. Right. So WASP-107b is an outstanding candidate for detecting um, metastable helium because of uh, the low density of the planet and also... The, the active star, which gives a lot of high energy radiation that you know ionizes the helium, it's really an, and it's orbits a bright star, so it's really an ideal candidate. Which is why we managed to detect it even with the low resolution um, Hubble data that we have. Now, uh, metastable helium forms in the upper atmosphere of the Earth, for example, just not in detectable levels with anything um, with any telescopes current or planned, we wouldn't be able to detect an helium, metastable helium in an Earth twin, for example. Right. Um, but we should be able to see it for um, super-Earths in the future with Webb, uh, hopefully. Um, cool. And also, you know, there have been a few, well, a, a handful of exoplanets with escaping atmospheres detected at, um, with the Lyman-Alpha line. Um, and so those planets for sure would be excellent targets for looking for um, a large helium signature as well. Mm. And, I, and I guess from what you've been saying, it sounds like you're also going to get a lot more data on WASP-107 from the ground in the future. Is that right? Well, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I'm sure they'll give it to you after, after the paper out this month. Yeah. Well, keep your eyes peeled for that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Andrew, you're going to talk about something called the Shadow Biosphere. Now, that, I, I, is that like a comic book villain or something? What is that? It does sound kind of kind of spooky, right? But I think it predates comic book villains a little bit. Um, the basic idea is 
Why look for aliens elsewhere when we can look for exotic life forms right here on the Earth? Maybe right under our nose, or maybe even in our nose, for that for that matter. Um, <laughs> so this is the the concept behind the shadow biosphere hypothesis. Um, so it was coined uh, relatively recently, like ten to fifteen years ago, by astrobiologist um, Carol Cleland and microbiologist Shelley Copley. So they wrote a paper that was published in the International Journal of Astronomy of Astrobiology called "The Possibility of Alternative Microbial Life." on earth so this is quite a you know already quite a a striking title so in the paper they posited that the well-accepted idea or the paradigm that all life on earth shared a single common ancestor might in fact be false and that alternative forms of microbial life from an un you know an unknown origin or yet unknown origin may exist concurrently with or even within our biosphere which biologists normally think is just a product of a single origin of life event or a single abiogenesis event so basically there might be more than one life form on the earth um, and those life forms would all have you know equal rights to call the planet home and we might even have been sharing the planet with those life forms without knowing it since basically the earth was able to support life so um, judging on the expressions that i'm seeing um from hannah this is clearly a, a very controversial claim that they were no, making I'm just as confused as to what that specifically means like just the base dna is different the the things maybe that not we're dna made up of. like so fundamentally different that it might not even be dna based it might be rna based or something comp- based on something completely different from the life that we're familiar with that we would identify as life now even identifying what life is is fraught with difficulty so when we're considering alternative forms of life or what that might even mean it makes it a lot more complicated um, and clearly it's a very controversial claim but actually it's not entirely outside the realm of possibility possibility uh, at least at first glance so i'm going to say i'm not a microbiologist but i did um consult with a colleague um hopefully some of this will will, will make sense and i know it's not um, completely ridiculous. So thank you to Maureen Berg if she's listening. She gave me some some uh, microbiologist insight into whether this was completely ludicrous or not. So what we did agree is that there's no physical or biological reason why, given a single origin of life event, which we must which must have happened somewhere, right? No, but we definitely happened at some point. We're here and we're talking about it. Um, that more than one event could not occur. Okay, so that's that's fair. The issue is the likelihood or the difficulty or the probability involved in those events because they're so poorly constrained and might actually be impossible to constrain. Um, Furthermore, we have evidence that um, life emerged pretty much as soon as habitable conditions were present on the Earth. So like 3.5 to 3.8 billion years ago in the Archean, this immediately, well, in geological terms anyway, followed a period of, you know, maybe heavy bombardment by material from the outer solar system. Maybe the Earth wasn't habitable for those first 500 million years or so, but pretty much as soon as we can detect habitable conditions, we find evidence for life. Now, whether this means that getting life going uh, is easy or origin of life events are easy is not, it's not you know, it's not really able, we're not really able to infer anything from that because we have what's known as uh, anthropic bias. And uh, for those who didn't catch my spiel on anthropic bias, I think in a much earlier exocast, what this basically means is that because all the evidence that we have, um, you know, for life on Earth comes from just a single planet and all the observations that we make of that life and that story have to be consistent with the current conditions and the fact that we are here talking about it. This puts like an observational bias on everything we look at. We couldn't necessarily say um, or we couldn't envision, uh, you know, maybe a situation where the Earth swung wildly between temperature extremes or, 
you know, suddenly had an eccentric orbit or was blasted with radiation, which made it uninhabitable for three billion years, because if that was the case, we wouldn't be here to talk about it, and therefore it couldn't have happened. So we get this like weird bias that prevents us from really being too objective about you know a single event that occurred, um, and certainly whether we can put it in the context of a larger origin of life theory. So another thing that they advance in the paper, which is a relatively good point, is that the techniques that we use to look for life might not be able to detect these alternative forms of life that they're hypothesizing, if they exist. And this is basically the problem with astrobiology, is like, how do you look for life that you don't recognize as life, like from the outset? And furthermore, how do you make a detection instrument that's scientifically rigorous and economically viable and can fit into a spacecraft that can detect life that you don't even, you haven't even imagined yet? And that's the issue. So they, they raise a number of issues about um, um, techniques that are used. I ran these by Maureen, and essentially they, she agreed that the techniques that we use, like microscopy, for example, and cell staining, um, you know, when you're looking for bacteria, these probably wouldn't be able to find novel forms of life. But then again, you necessarily wouldn't be using those techniques to look for that type of life anyway. These are for other techniques like uh, cell counts and biofilm formations. Um, other techniques like culturing apparently has a, has a very strong bias because some, um, some strains are much easier to grow in a lab than others. But again, you wouldn't be using that technique if you were looking for a really rare microbe that only grew in very extreme environments. So other techniques like uh, PCR, which stands for polymerase chain reactions. I don't know a huge amount about it, but again, that it does have a bias um, because it's only looking for DNA-based life, right? And if it doesn't have DNA or it's not based on DNA, then again, you're not going to find it. So their, their concerns are valid, but it doesn't necessarily add anything to the conversation because at the minimum, they argue we can't confidently rule it out, but it's not really a testable hypothesis either. So it's kind of a bit hand-wavy. Um, one thing I would say is that preservation of, of life or evidence of life at, at you know, 3.8, 3.5 billion years ago is so, so difficult. I mean, these were single-celled organisms, you know, squishy and soft, nothing hard, no shells. Um, so anything that did remain was just indentations or um, just uh, biochemical residue, basically, like kerogens. So the fact that we even have any evidence for life back then at all is maybe incredibly lucky, but who knows? I mean, who knows how much we missed, essentially. Um, so I, I can imagine that you're probably thinking about implications um, if this were true. And there would be significant implications astrobiologically and biologically as well. Um, if you could prove definitively that there were two or you know, at least more than one origin of life events on a single planet and they were unrelated, this might significantly improve the odds of finding life elsewhere because that has to say something about the difficulty or the relative easiness of getting life going to start with. Um, it also maybe might introduce some ideas about what it, our understanding of life, um, maybe with a complex chimera of multiple roots and horizontal gene transference, all one big mess, which is possibly true as well. And again, it just comes back to the, the whole idea of how do we look for life that we don't recognize as life. So there's been a lot of theory there, um, a lot to think about, but is there any evidence for a shadow biosphere on the earth? Well, in summary, no. So you can skip to the end of the segment now if you want. Um, but the, the, the one case I wanted to highlight was back in 2011, a paper was published in Science that suggested that an organism found in California's hypersaline mono lake, which is like 
250 miles east from where I'm currently recording this, um, there was an organism in there that grew using arsenic instead of phosphorus. And you might, you might remember this paper. It was quite a controversial one for this reason. Um, so if there's an organism that's growing using arsenic instead of phosphorus, this is quite a, a huge thing, um, quite a, a huge claim. Because all life previously was thought to use um, the following species, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. And we summarize them as the, the chin-up species, or depending on which school you went to, they had different, you know, different little acronyms, but I went with chin-ups. Um, and, you know, this is like drilled into first-year biology students. That all life needs, you know, the chin-up species in some, in some ratio. But what geobiologist Felicia Wolf-Simon and her team were suggesting was that instead of chin-ups, you would have um, something that used chinoas. So instead of the P, you're replacing that with an A. So the phosphorus comes out and the arsenic comes in. And now apparently those are functionally quite similar, but they do very different things for biology. Um, now, if this were true, this would have significant implications for life on Earth, maybe as evidence of that shadow biosphere, as evidence of a type of life that was fundamentally completely different from the life that we were aware of, and then also, therefore, for life elsewhere. So the paper and um, its methods were immediately and widely criticised when it came out, as you might remember, um, because follow-up studies strongly refuted the findings. They couldn't, they couldn't find any evidence that the organism, uh, which was known as GFAJ-1, was you know, living solely on arsenic. It was shown to definitely be strongly arsenic-tolerant, but it still needed a little bit of phosphorus uh, to, to live. So there could have been methods, a method issue, basically. Um, in my personal opinion, though, the communication regarding the finding was was roundly misrepresented by NASA. So uh, Wolf Simon was a, a postdoc like me at the time, and a press conference was hosted by the NASA Astrobiology Institute that only fueled the flames of the sensationalism. It was all embargoed, and they were leaking things out, um, and it basically left the poor author completely eviscerated and unfairly hung out to dry. Um, so there was a lot of criticism, some of which was valid, I think, some of which was pretty unfair and harsh and personal. Um, but maybe that's that's a story for another time. So in summary, no strong evidence. So you know why bring this up at all? Well, I thought you no, know, it's an interesting theory to think about, um, and we often take for face at face value things that are kind of long held, but ultimately still uncertain. You know, hypotheses hypotheses about. Um, uh, you know, life on Earth and life elsewhere. Uh, there's lots of unknowns of biology that could still be tested and reevaluated as new evidence becomes available. So, yeah, I thought that was cool. Um, and also, I guess it provides a lesson in caution, or at least for dealing with NASA's press office, um, that you know, if you make an extraordinary claim, you better be prepared to back it up with some extraordinary evidence, and especially if you're talking about aliens, because people are going to be all over that. Um, and finally, I think it illustrates the fact that this is basically the whole issue with astrobiology: is how do you look for life that you might not recognise as life, and how do you make it scientifically rigorous, economically viable? Um, if anyone knows that, answers on a postcard to me or to Chief Scientist Jim Green because he'd probably want to hear from you and you'll probably get a Nobel Prize out of it. It would be great. Um, but until then, uh, I don't know, keep looking up or down or in rocks or in weird lakes in California or basically anywhere for aliens because who knows where they might actually be. <laughs> Very nice. So was the, was the arsenic bacteria purported to be the shadow biosphere then? Is that, is that the link? Um, it was purported to support that hypothesis, and I know the author herself was um, apprehensive about making these claims to start with, which is why I'm coming down pretty hard on the NAI, but I think it was kind of their, their fault for, um, for kind of treating it in that, in that way. Had it been true, then I think, yeah, it would have added, added something to the conversation, certainly, pushing out the envelope of life and, you know, 
illustrating another extreme file in an extreme environment um, that just questioned our our basic understanding of what life is. But whether it would have been evidence for that shadow biosphere, uh, I'm not too sure. Certainly, that was the way it was. Um, it was leaked out in little bits by the press office. <laughs> terrible way of treating people and scientific investigation because I'm imagining that that kind of reaction from both the scientific community and from the press and everything has I don't know essentially ended a career but also stemmed like stopped people from trying to make those scientific leaps stopped people from actually questioning and looking for that kind of evidence and making that the subject or something that they should be looking for so that's a little bit disappointing well um fortunately it didn't end um felicia's career i know she's much happier doing what she's doing now a lot more teaching based and um out of the out of the terrible spotlight of the nai (laughs) so um i know i know she's still doing great work and she dealt she dealt to be fair she dealt with that criticism incredibly well like i said she was a postdoc at the time leading this study it's a science paper so you know it'd been technically super well peer-reviewed apparently um so any issues with the method should have been caught uh, a little bit earlier um but there were mistakes made i think um and maybe just a a lesson there about how science gets done as well yeah a little bit of lessons from from all sides i think going back to the the whole shadow thing like i was always taught that once or not taught maybe it's just something i assumed but once the earth had its first strain of life it started eating all of the all of the carbon around and that could include the carbon and and you know hydrocarbons that would go into another origin of life and it could also include any other origin of life that that occurs so how does how does that like a shadow biosphere for me would be weird because surely it would just be eaten unless it's quite by the current biosphere yeah. yeah essentially this is Maureen said this as well you'd have to there would have to be billions of years in which that particular biosphere was strongly selected for and also didn't compete with the current biosphere which again adds adds a lot more doubt to this ever being the case because you can't i can't think of a single environment that's been physically chemically isolated from the rest of the earth unless we're going like i don't know 100 kilometers down into the crust but even then that stuff's been recycled through the crust a whole bunch of times so i can't think think of hawaii right now yeah a a single isolated refugia basically that could support um you know that kind of that kind of biosphere but you know chances are that early life was probably quite constrained spatially um even when we come up to like oxygenic cyanide bacteria those would have been you know super concentrated in um whatever refugia they they emerged in um for most of their um early existence certainly before they got a foothold and started oxygenating the atmosphere so yeah um i don't know is the answer (laughs) Well, I can certainly assume that any searches, any scientific investigation into evidence for the shadow biosphere is giving us a huge amount of data and and understanding of our own biosphere itself as a kind of byproduct of that investigation. So, um, you know, it's not a bad question to ask, and I don't think that necessarily you're losing anything by asking that kind of question yeah that's what i want to illustrate that you know i, I thought it, it certainly made me think it made me gave me pause for thought um and whether whether it came to fruition you know probably not but uh, it certainly got me thinking about this topic and if it can spawn a discussion and get people thinking about things in that in that perspective then all the better i say excellent 
Yeah, that's a cool idea. I'd never heard of that, but I, I, I like it, the Shadow Biosphere. Yeah, that's why I wanted to illustrate it as well, because it has a pretty cool name. <laughs> I doubt we'll find it, but I, I like we'll it as an it. idea. It's yeah. like the dark matter of the astrobiology world. Yes, basically. Like, Although we don't use it to fill gaps in our knowledge. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we just use aliens, <laughs> just like general aliens for that. <laughs> So I'm sure it's been a, a busy month in exoplanet science as usual, uh, so let's throw it over to our intrepid reporter in the field, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, for more. Uh, so we've already heard about some of the exciting news from the past month, but uh, it was not the lone characterization uh, effort that came out of the EXTA group, in fact. Just a week after that paper was published, another Nature paper, which was led by Nikolai Nikolov, was presenting the transmission spectrum of a hot Saturn mass exoplanet, WASP-96b, which they used the VLT Force 2 instrument to observe and showed that you can detect a pressure boredom sodium feature from the ground, which was beautiful. This is actually the clearest detection of sodium in the atmosphere of an exoplanet to date and indicates that any clouds that are forming in this planet's atmosphere are almost certainly below those observed pressures, so much deeper in the atmosphere. And this allowed us to see these pressure broadened line wings of the sodium atom in the atmosphere and that allowed us to measure the temperature for that planet as well and what we're able to do from that is kind of show evidence that clouds aren't going to hamper absolutely everything we still got a lot to learn about how the pressure broadening of sodium in the atmospheres can be accounted for with our models as there's multiple models that can be used to look at this pressure broadening and try and understand its impact in the atmosphere but also it allows us to get to that base continuum level, this base kind of transmission depth that we would expect for a planetary atmosphere where we see the hydrogen helium scattering. So the collision induced absorption from the base species, a hydrogen helium dominated atmosphere. And that means that for this planet, whenever we detect a molecule, we can actually give you the absolute abundance of that material in the atmosphere. And that's going to be really interesting as we move forward into different wavelengths. So this is a really great detection. Um, I, really remarkable precision which actually matches our space-based precision that we've got before but done from the ground so it was really great that paper coming out now in in other characterization side of things there was a slew of ultra hot jupiter papers this month all coordinated to hit the archive on exactly the same day uh, being led by three different authors parmentier lofringer and kreiberg and each paper looked at different aspects of the ultra hot jupiters hot jupiters which have temperatures greater than 2000 kelvin that is so the Kreiberg paper presented the emission spectrum of WASP-103b from HST and spits of phase curves, finding that the planet's output is consistent with that of a black body. So that's much like what we see from stars and things. And where the heat is actually poorly redistributed around the planet. So the night side is over a thousand Kelvin colder than the day side of the planet, which reaches a whopping 2930 Kelvin. So that, that all came from those measurements. The Lofringer paper, they explored the impact of thermal dissociation of molecules, which is how heat can break apart different molecules in the atmosphere and what and where this can be expected to happen. And one thing that they focused on was the H- ions and how their presence will impact the atmospheres of these planets, which act more like stars at these high temperatures. And one of the key things from that study finds that you can create a thermal inversion in the atmosphere, so a point in the atmosphere where the temperature starts to increase instead of decrease with altitude uh, by using this H- ion, which we've previously kind of adopted 
uh, titanium oxide and vanadium oxide to use do produce this role in the atmosphere but what they show is that h minus ions that are thermally dissociated can actually produce this thermal inversion as well so that's another thing that can be present in an atmosphere that we can start trying to look for and start trying to understand to to see these thermal inversions that we might expect for these very very hot planets and then finally, out of this slew, uh, the Parmentier paper takes a broad look at ultra-hot Jupiter atmospheres, looking at their emission spectra of 14 previously measured hot Jupiters from the literature and fitting different global circulation models to those different data sets to try and find a link between them. And what they suggest is that there's a link between this thermal dissociated uh, hydrogen minus ions and TiO, so this titanium oxide, in the structures that we see in their dayside emission spectra. Now, overall, these three papers paint an interesting phase space comparison of these really exotic, uh, strongly irradiated worlds. So it was a good uh, number of papers if you're interested in ultra-hot ultra Jupiters. Now, to keep on the theme of some characterization of sorts, I suppose, uh, the Gaia DR2 release allowed astronomers to look at the light from hundreds of thousands of stars and make more accurate measurements on their flux and distance, which actually allow us a better radius approximation for a number of these stars. This is, this is a non-zero impact on actually the measurements and the characterization of transiting exoplanets because what we're able to do is we're, measure, we're measuring the radius of the star uh, and if that goes up, then the radius of the planet also has to go up because we're measuring that relative radius of the planet over the radius of the star. So the team led by Berger et al. looked at... 186,813 Kepler stars and found that 65% of those stars are on the main sequence, 23% are subgiants and 12% are red giants. And using revised numbers, they recalculated the radii of 2,218 confirmed Kepler planets as well as a further 1,958 candidate planets. Now, one of the key findings that they, they had when they redid this analysis to try and get better measurements of these planets is that there was this previously established super earth desert or the evaporation valley as it was also called which has now shifted to slightly larger sized planets so now that they th they they've shown that there are some planets in the kepler database that are actually within what was previously thought of as this evaporation valley and now this this valley has shifted to larger radii instead so actually i don't know if you read the fulton paper which was another gaia dr2 release paper and they looked in detail at the the stars that went into the the previous fulton paper which showed the gap and interestingly they don't they don't see this shift to higher radii the um the fulton gap is where it was expected but it's it's populated by some planets, so it's not empty. I quite like the naming system we do to this map. Valleys and deserts and uh, hills Valleys and, and mountains. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, and deserts aren't, aren't entirely empty themselves. Yeah, They're just sometimes characterised by a lower you know? density of, of stuff that you're interested in. Exactly. <laughs> just stuff, less. water. Water, life, you know, you name it. Okay, moving on to our category of detections, but keeping a survey theme in place. Uh, 
The new administrator of NASA was so excited to see the first test image that he insisted on putting together a nice press release. Uh, and people weren't disappointed to either. Andrew and I were actually at a one-day conference where it was presented to an applauding audience. So it circulated Twitter multiple times after that and Facebook all over the place. So people were clearly just yeah. as excited. Spontaneous um, applause broke out. Spontaneous applause. It wasn't demanded so or anything. <laughs> <laughs> the, the image itself is just actually only a, a tiny sneak peek uh, into what TESS is going to be doing. It's just one small JPEG image supplied, which shows the TESS image quality. And it's just the central segment of one of the cameras. So one thing that you can immediately note if you've seen this image is that it is going to have some problems with crowding. There's lots and lots of things that it's going to be able to detect, which is great, but crowding's going to be a problem. So just as it was announced, actually, Hannah, Hannah lent into me and said, oh, that's awful. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? And she was obviously talking about, she was thinking about it from a science point of view. Like the number of stars in that, in that field of view was, was huge. Um, it was a fantastic said something, image. Yeah. But I was like, I'm going to have to mention that, Hannah. I don't have to mention it. <laughs> it's okay. You you mentioned it in a nice, kinder way than what I actually said. So there's that. Um, <laughs> I was being critical, as understanding that this is going to this is going to take difficult. some time. This is going to mm -hmm. these pixels are huge. Uh, uh, there's a lot of stars that it's going to be looking at, even in the least populated regions that it's going to be really focusing on around the poles. There's very few stars that we we can see up there compared to looking towards the galaxy itself. And it's TESS is very much going to focus on those less dense regions of the sky. But at the same time, you're going to get a lot of contamination from other stars and other other things that are going to make that a difficult job. So it's this is just a sneak peek for everybody. The TESS teams are... I'm sure are very happy they get the next six months of proprietary time to work out what they can do with these images and work out and test all of their pipelines to determine what kind of planets we might be able to find in that data. So in six months, we'll, we'll have that available to the general public. But actually, I wanted Hugh's opinion on this. What did you think of the image? Because I, I know you've seen it and you're our resident planet discoverer. So you would have a more valid opinion than my immediate Oh, God, that's awful. I mean, I kind of looked at it and went, yeah, that's that's the test image. That's what it'll look like. That's what I expected. We are so spoiled. <laughs> we are so spoiled. <laughs> Hugh seems to be more spoiled than the rest of us. He always has this opinion. Oh, well, it was just another SpaceX launch. It <laughs> They're getting boring, okay? But this is Tess. Tess was... You're saying the same thing. No, okay. no. I mean, it's, it was, it's, it's cool. exactly it's, what you thought. That's good. It's amazing to see it's up there and it's working. And actually something... Um, it, it's, it's, got, it's hit all its um, orbital manoeuvres perfectly. Yeah, nominally. Nominally, sorry. Nominally. And it probably means it might have more fuel and it might be able to last longer, which is quite cool. So we'll see how long it goes. I'm not sure what the ultimate thing that'll kill Tess will be, but it could, it could go for a decade, for a decade at least. I wonder if the if the same boosters that are going to be used for like orbital um, insertions are going to be the same ones that would be for pointing. Do you think? Oh yeah, I don't know much about spacecraft. No, you right. <laughs> because you'd think yeah, like maybe. one of those would we have should... to give a little bit more power than the other. Yeah, but maybe. Maybe I don't I, know. I can't recall. But yeah, nominal nominal in NASA talk means like unbelievably amazing and almost impossibly good. So things are going very nominally. 
What's the opposite of nominal for, out of interest? Subnominal, probably. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's how James Webb is at the moment. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get to nominal. That'll be great. I hope. So I'm just going to follow on from that with a smattering of discovered planets, which you kindly supplied me um, because credit where credit is due. So I'm just going to read out what Hugh sent me rather than anything else. I, I just uh, sent you the names of the planets and a link. Yep. I hope you, I hope Here you we read go. the archive Names link. of planets. 560 Coroplanet candidates. Do you want to read it, Hugh? I'll read each <laughs> one. Yeah, I mean, Hat South are up to 59, B and C, so that's a, a multiple planets in that system. Are we sure we haven't covered these? <laughs> we do have a tendency to, to cover the Hat planets a no, lot. No, I, ha- I think those 59 we haven't done yet. Okay. We haven't done 59 yet. K2, 216, B. HD, 89345B. And NGTS three A B. Did I miss NGTS two, or is that not uh, it, out? It's uh, tomorrow. It right. Excellent. <laughs> you heard it here first, guys. Um, and then finally, a uh, little bit of detail about CS Char, if that's how you say it, uh, was observed um, with VLT Sphere and in archive data from HST Widefield Planetary Camera two which currently sits in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Uh, and they, they looked at, at scattered light of this compact circumbinary disk and discovered a faint co-moving companion, 210 AU, outside of that disk. And it was detected using polarised light, where it had a really strongly polarised signal. And they find that this can be best explained by a highly extincted... 20 Jupiter mass brown dwarf with its own unresolved dust disk around it. So possibility of that being essentially a triple system, making it where the third companion is this brown dwarf. And if it's got a a young enough dust disk, either a ring system or potentially forming its own moons or planets, as we would call them around that. So that needs a lot of further you know, follow up for it, but it's a really interesting polarized light detection, which is something that uh, we've been trying for a really long time. So it's it's good that getting some results from that polarized light studies. And finally, good news for astrobiologists and uh, those habitable planet hunters, uh, as there seems to be a new theory on how we can expand the habitable zone again. This time from the presence of methane, uh, it was examined with water, carbon dioxide and nitrogen to extend the outer habitable zone. So this is the outer edge of it by around 20% from the previously established distances. And now now this is something that I, I've been talking about with my Science for Non-Scientists course that I do at Space Telescope. And one thing that I talk about a lot is the ability for us the atmospheres of planets, so the atmospheres of these exoplanets, to really aid in extending the habitable zone outwards away from the star. So in these colder regimes, you can maintain your heat by by sticking atmos- diff- atmospheres of different constituents out there. But one question that I have for Andrew and you know for other people is, what can we do to extend it inwards? And I, I assume very little, but I was wondering if you have any advanced information there, Andrew, on, on what you can do to push that habitable zone closer to a star. Yeah, yeah, that's the tricky, that's the tricky one because okay, so the outer limit. It's obviously, you know, usually a condensation, like a cloud condensation thing. But the inner limit is that runaway greenhouse point where you just have more energy, you know, going from long wave radiation from 
impacting the various constituents of the atmosphere that you actually have coming in and it results in this terrible runaway situation you get venus so basically you have to figure out some way of introducing an opacity source maybe uh, that's actually not going to absorb as well like a big mirror in space i mean it's 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 nonsense i've got nothing frankly yeah, some aerosols maybe nonsense. um it's it's very difficult to go in um but much easier to okay I think, so go out. everybody's trying their best to model planetary atmospheres trying to understand how we can extend that habitable zone further and further away from the stars so that we can really just start looking in these different regimes as to where we might find life yeah i don't know if that's the the intention is to extend it but maybe just to have a better un understanding of how um the parameter space uh how to explore the parameter space with different atmospheric constituents so you know i am kind of a little bit critical i guess of continued habitable zone studies um but ones that certainly expand the 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 space of realistic and you know potentially detectable atmospheric constituents to maybe give us a, a general understanding of how um planetary atmospheres change and evolve and and react to incoming stellar flux that's a useful thing um whether we should be framing it i guess is like a habitable zone thing the whole time i i, I don't know i don't know if it adds adds anything more but i mean it was certainly a good paper uh, you know they did everything well all right well that's it from our international news desk until next time so we've started letting our guests adopt planets into our fun and wacky exoclass family, which means, Jessica, it's your turn to adopt a planet. What have you chosen? I've chosen a planet that I can't believe has not been chosen before. Um, 51 Pegasi B. Why has that not been been chosen before? Well, we know. like to go for like the unwanted children oh, of exoplanets. Oh, that's, that's nice. Like a little animal adoption. Yeah, exactly that. I mean. Yeah. 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 Alright. We, right. we say that, but we've adopted some ones that are really well liked, so maybe we're just, I don't know. I'm just going for the, like, the big, obvious movie stars. So, 51 Peg B was the first exoplanet discovered around uh, a sun-like star. Um... Actually, the, the main reason I like it is because I like to remind myself how mysterious the universe is. And when we think we, we understand the universe and um, where planets should form, at what mass, um, the universe throws a curveball and gives us a hot Jupiter exoplanet, which, yeah, I, I, I like to use to remind myself that the universe is full of happy surprises. Yep, so that's why I picked it. <laughs> that's a wonderful reason. <laughs> Thanks. I think one of the reasons we didn't include it is because actually when you look at it now, now we have this whole array of hot Jupiter population. It's it, mm. Even though it was the first one and that makes it really interesting, it kind of just sits mm. in the middle it's of that. It's real boring. Yeah, yeah it sits it's in the, the middle of this population. hot Jupiter. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it really is an archetype of those hot Jupiters. I think one of the cool things we do have from it is reflected light measurements using high resolution, I believe a couple of years ago, um, mm. the Leiden team were able to measure the rotation of mm. the planet, is that right? Or, or carbon monoxide present on the planet's day side, I think. So it's one of the few planets we've done that with. Yeah, so it's one of the planets that uh, one of our previous guests, Jane Birkby, uh, has worked on and shown that with the high resolution spectra that you do with the 
cross-correlation methods allows you to look at some of the different molecules in that atmosphere from from planets that we can't get more advanced information from through other methods so it's definitely got that going for it yeah in fact it was water they discovered i'm just having a look now and because they see the the light from the planet itself they can actually measure an actual mass because most of these radial velocity planets we only get a mm. m sine i right so a, a lower bound on the mass but because they detected the planet itself they they were able to set its mass as 0.46 jupiter masses pretty uh pretty nicely so that's that's quite a cool thing about about 51 peg i mean the coolest thing is that it's the first sunlight <laughs> <laughs> it kind of set the groundwork for everything <laughs> moving forward and <laughs> there was a flurry of people looking into previous data and taking more data of the similar thing and <laughs> trying to understand what it is that had been discovered yeah, it's nice when a discovery like that just spurs on this huge, um, this period of excitement and everyone goes back and um, uh, following the lead. Yeah, and it fueled the investigations into other methods as well. So it might not have been the first method that was postulated to discover planets, but it, if we didn't have these radial velocity worlds, then some of the first transit, in fact, mm. the first transiting planets wouldn't have been mm. discovered. So it's a really, really launch pad for a huge number of portions of exoplanet science mm. and also when it comes to like planet formation theory like finding a, a planet that size that close to the star at the time was kind of weird how do we do that how did it even get there so it wasn't just mm. the detection it was also you know the, the, the basic theory about where and how planets form that that was revolutionary yeah, which is still an active area mm -hmm. of research like yeah good choice good choice jessica yeah definitely choice Well, thank you so much for joining us for another installment of Exocast. Hope you found it as interesting as we did. Uh, we will return next month with more exciting exoplanetary news and views when Hannah will be joined by a special guest. Um, until then, you can check out all our previous shows on our website, exocast.org. On iTunes, you can follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast. And of course, like us on Facebook. So until next time, bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Take off.